Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Thanks, Rebecca. How many people have seen the movie The Return of the King? Okay. So there's a scene in Return of the King when two of our heroes, Gandalf the White, he's the wizard, and then Pippin the Little Hobbit, they go on this journey to the city of Minas Tirith, which is the capital of Gondor. Okay? And they're there in order to visit Denethor, who is the ruler of Gondor. Now, Denethor is not the king, and that's really important. Denethor is not the king of Gondor. He's the steward, and it's his job to rule Gondor uh, until the rightful king can be found. Okay? Now, if you've seen the movie, you know that it's Aragorn of Arathorn. Spoiler alert. But uh, that it's, it's important to understand Denethor is not the king. It's his job to hold the place until the rightful king can be found. And he's actually doing a terrible job. He's proud. He's arrogant. He's a, he's a narcissist and a tyrant. Meanwhile, the Dark Lord Sauron has an army of orcs, and they're working their way across the, the earth, across Middle Earth, and Denethor isn't doing anything about it. And that's why Gandalf and Pippin are there. They're there to persuade Denethor to do something about it, fight back. But Denethor won't listen. He doesn't trust Gandalf. He thinks that Gandalf is only there in order to replace him as king. And so he gets super angry, has a temper tantrum, and he just loses it on Gandalf and Pippin. Now their response is really interesting because Pippin, he's a sweet little hobbit, and he panics and he bows the knee and he ends up pledging himself in service to Denethor. You remember that? And Gandalf has a very different reaction. He's not bowing to anybody. He challenges Denethor, and we get this great line. We get this great line. Authority isn't given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. That's great. You know, it seems to me Gandalf and Pippin couldn't be more different in that moment. It's a really powerful scene in the entire, in the whole trilogy. Uh, and it's interesting, pa- Pippin bows and Gandalf confronts. And I think one of the reasons perhaps it's such a powerful scene is because there's a part of us that wishes that we, were, we could be Gandalf, when the truth is that more often we are Pippin. Someone powerful, someone intimidating gets angry at us, and we will sometimes tend to bow the knee instead of confront. And we want to be able to, to be like Gandalf and say, no, you're wrong. You're not as powerful as you think you are, and I'm not afraid of you. Now, last week we began a series uh, in in the book of Daniel, and we followed Daniel and his four friends from Jerusalem into exile in Babylon, and we asked, what does character look like in exile? What does character look like in Babylon? Like, how how does Daniel make a decision about when to abstain from something, and how does he make a decision about when to partake in something when he's in Babylon? Because we will face that decision too. And if you missed that message, that's online on our, on our website and on our podcast page. You can get caught up. And today we're continuing in this study, and Daniel's test this morning is a relational one. His test in Babylon is a relational one. He's going to come face-to-face with King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is just furious. And the easiest thing, the safest thing for Daniel would be to kneel to bow the knee, to tell the king what he thinks he wants to hear. And instead, 
He's going to tell them the truth. He's going to tell them the whole truth. And so today what we're asking is, where does that come from? Like, where does truth-telling come from? Where do exiles get the, the courage to speak truth to power when it's certainly going to cost them, when it's sure to cost them. And, and, and so I've, I've got some answers that I, I think are going to be helpful for us to see those. We're going to study a couple of dreams in the book of Daniel. We're going to focus on a couple of dreams in the book of Daniel. The first one is here in chapter 2, and a little later we're going to come to chapter 7. But let's focus on chapter 2 for now, because here's how the dream begins, or here's how the story begins. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's a horrible dream. It's a nightmare and he needs someone to interpret it for him, okay? So he gathers his staff of astrologers and magicians and wise men. He gathers them around. He is, he is so, uh, so animated and upset, he's not even telling them what the dream was. He just assumes they should be able to tell him. So the astrologers all come to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. They're like, King, tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And, and he says, no, 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 you guys are messing with me. This is what I pay you for. You're the astrologers and, and the wise men. You shouldn't need me to tell you the dream. Your wise man powers should, should give you the dream. And so I'm not telling you. You tell me what, it, what the dream means. And the response to him is, is really interesting. The response in verse 11, the king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among the people. That's interesting. Now we'll come back to that. But Nebuchadnezzar is furious, okay? He's about to have all of his wise men killed, including Daniel and his friends. But thanks to Daniel, the, the story takes a, a different turn because Daniel comes, and, he, and when, he, when he arrives, he, he says, King, there are no wise men. This is verse 27. There are no wise men or enchanters or magicians or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. And so Daniel goes on and he explains what happens in the dream. And so here's what he saw. There's this giant idol, this giant statue in four parts, okay? And the head is gold, and the head represents Babylon, Daniel tells him. Okay, so the head is gold, the chest is silver, the waist and the thighs are bronze, and the legs are iron. And each section of the statue represents a different kingdom. And then all of a sudden, this great big rock that's not formed by human hands comes down from the heavens and it smashes the, 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 the statue and crushes it into dust and it's kind of scattered to the wind. And what Nebuchadnezzar wants to know is, this is what I've seen, now tell me what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, I need to pause here and say a word about prophecy. Prophecy is tricky, okay? Because the Bible has a lot of it, and the book of Daniel has a lot of it too. And the leading theory about what is happening in this dream is that what Nebuchadnezzar saw is that Babylon, the kingdom of gold, is going to be conquered by Persia, and then Persia is going to be conquered by Greece, and then Greece is going to be conquered by Rome. And those, those empires are going to rule for a time. And historically, that happened, okay? That happened. The tricky thing is, Daniel doesn't tell the king who uh, is going to rule. He doesn't tell Nebuchadnezzar who these kingdoms are, who, who these kingdoms represent. He just tells them, 
that it's not Nebuchadnezzar who's going to rule. You understand that? You with me on that? Nebu- uh, Daniel's goal here isn't to show Nebuchadnezzar who his dream was about, just that it's not about him, just that it's not Nebuchadnezzar who's going to remain on the throne for long. And it seems to me that's just an important thing for us to hear because a lot of us grew up in churches or church traditions where we heard a lot of preaching about, about prophecy. So maybe you grew up in a setting where you heard someone standing at the front of the room and they would hear, a, you know, they would take a, a passage like this one in Daniel 2 or later the one in Daniel chapter 7 and they go, well, this means that and that means this and therefore watch out because this is, is happening. And when, we, when, you're, when your teachers and preachers did that, a lot of the parts of the Bible that actually have important lessons for us here and now were missed. Those lessons were missed in order that the, those teachers could talk about some things that, are, that may or may not be coming in the future. They treated these passages like a roadmap of the future. And what I want to say is this. As a, as a teacher, as a, as, a, as a pastor, my commitment to you is to do the best that I can to communicate what Scripture seems to be trying to communicate. And not less than that, but also not more. You with me on that? Is that all right? And the reason I say that is because when, if we focus on what is not clear, if we, if we major on what's not clear, what the text doesn't seem to be trying to say, uh, in, instead of what is clear, we miss the point. We'll miss the point. And that's why this is a sermon about truth-telling and not about, like, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, okay? Because we want to focus on what is the point. The point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is actually something that no king wants to hear, okay? The point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is something no king wants to hear, but he desperately needs to. And the point of it is this. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is not going to last, it is not going to last. He's going to leave no legacy. He will be forgotten, and his kingdom is going to turn to dust. And Daniel sees it. And so the question is, where did Daniel get the courage to say so? How did he do that? What makes him able to tell the king the truth when so often we are tempted to bend the truth or soften the truth to make it more acceptable and kind of protect ourselves? How did he do that? That's what this story is about. Okay? That's what this story is about. You probably will never come face to face with a king who needs to hear a hard truth from you. But all of us will find ourselves in situations where the truth that we need to tell isn't welcome, or it isn't safe, or it isn't popular, or it's offensive, or it's risky, or it's likely to get you canceled. And I need you to know that is not weird. That's a normal part of exile. That's a normal part of exile. That's a normal feeling for those of us who are trying to live for God in Babylon. And so I know I, I have friends who grew up in abusive homes, and now that they're adults and they're raising their own families, they've had to tell their parents a hard truth. They've had to tell their parents the truth about why they don't get to see their grandkids. And so they've had to tell their parents the hard truth, we can't trust our kids around you. That's hard. That's hard. That's costly. I know parents whose kids were in a, a class in school where the teacher taught them, you might not be a boy or girl after all. It's up to you to decide. And those parents of those children had to decide, 
uh, whether or not to tell their teacher the truth. And they decided to, to, to say it, to speak their truth and say, for us, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. And we expect you to teach the curriculum not less and not more. And don't abuse the trust that you have as a school teacher. I, I know employees, Christians who are employees of companies who've been asked by a boss or a manager or a, like a supervisor to lie or to take shortcuts for the sake of the company. And so they had to decide, am I going to stand up to my boss? Am I going to speak the truth uh, and, and say, you're asking me to do something that I can't do. You're asking me to do something that I won't do. And so you can fire me if you want, but I will not do this thing that you're asking me to do. That's hard. These are hard situations. And, and you've faced similar situations, I'm sure. And in the same way, there is this really hard truth that Nebuchadnezzar needs to hear. Nebuchadnezzar needs to hear it, and Daniel's going to tell him. Here it is in verse 44. He says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It'll crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. God's kingdom will stand forever. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. This dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Like, this is happening, Nebuchadnezzar. Whether we like it or not, this is what's coming. So Daniel has been faithful. Daniel has been a truth-teller. And again, what I want to do is dig into this choice, dig into this decision that he's made, and ask, for our sake, like, where did that come from? Where do truth-tellers come from? Like, how do I overcome my fear of the Nebuchadnezzars in my life and do that? And so let me share some observations from the text, okay? Because this is where I think truth-tellers come from. I've got four things I want to uh, point out. Think of these as maybe marks of a truth-teller. The first is prayer, okay? The first is prayer. One of Daniel's first steps is to gather his friends and they go to prayer. Verse 18, he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. And that night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So they prayed, and God answered their prayer. And it seems to me it's really imp- important, it's really interesting that that's the first step. Because, like, how many times in my life have I gotten really upset and have I blamed God for not acting, for not doing what I hoped he would, for not showing up in the way that I hoped he would, when I never even asked him. How often does that happen? Actually, quite a bit. And I want you to know, God is eager to hear your prayers and to respond if we would only go to him. If we'd only go to him. And so a truth teller, a big part of being a truth teller is being a person of prayer, okay? A truth teller is also a person with sound doctrine. And I love this. I love that this is in there. Uh, when, when God answers Daniel's prayer, he's immediately moved to praise God, and what he says in his praise of God shows us what he believes. So listen to this, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. That's doctrine, okay? He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. That's all doctrine. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. Friends, that's all doctrine. That's all theology, okay? 
And I think maybe it's easy for us to think that or to assume that theology is sort of a, a hobby for old men with big white beards who are writing, you know, great big fat textbooks for people in seminary. It's not. Because you're a theologian. Do you know that? You're a theologian. Today, you're going to make a thousand decisions about what to do and what not to do, and you'll make those decisions on the basis of what you believe about God or what you don't believe about God. You're a theologian. Okay? And sound doctrine help, gives us courage to speak the truth. That's, the, that's one of the benefits of sound doctrine. False doctrine doesn't do that. Unsound doctrine doesn't, doesn't do that, but sound doctrine does. And so it's important. This is an important part of being a truth teller, is being equipped with sound doctrine. Uh, a, a third mark, I think, of a, of a truth teller is compassion. Compassion. Now here, it's interesting because as the story unfolded, Daniel knew that the king wants to kill all of his advisors. He's like, all of these magi, they're good for nothing. What am I paying these guys for? Daniel sees that they're about to die, and he's like, that's not fair. They don't deserve to die for this because they can't be blamed for not knowing something that's impossible for them to know. Of course they don't know what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. It's impossible. These guys are false prophets. How can they be expected to know this thing that they can't possibly know? And so, in verse 24, Daniel pleads for their lives. It says in verse 24, Don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. So what is that? That's mercy, friends. That's compassion. What the wise men don't know is that they owe Daniel their lives. He has gotten in the way, and he has stopped the king from treating the, these, these prophets, these, these uh, magi. He's stopped the king from treating them the way that they deserved. What they don't know is that Daniel is their savior. We'll come back to that. Because a truth-teller is a person who looks at a situation and says, yes, I could keep silent and I could save myself. But a truth-teller is a person who looks at a situation and says, if I keep this to myself, innocent people suffer. And if I tell the truth, I can help them. And you're moved by compassion. You're moved by mercy. And you tell Nebuchadnezzar the hard truth. And that's what Daniel did. So a, a, a truth-teller is someone who is moved by compassion, they're grounded and, and, and strengthened by sound doctrine. They begin with prayer. And there's one more part of being a truth-teller. One more part of being a truth-teller, and it's fear. It's fear. Now, what do I mean? I'll ask you to come with me a few chapters forward to Daniel chapter 7. And we'll see another dream. This time it's Daniel's dream. Okay, this is the second dream we're looking at today. This dream takes, it, it comes to Daniel about 50 years later. Daniel's an old man now. He's asleep in his bed. He has this awful dream, and it's scarier than the first one. Okay? He says in verse 2, In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. And then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. So as you picture what's going on in this dream, you've got these four giant, like, kaiju monsters, these four great big Godzilla kind of monsters that rise up out of the sea, and they attack the earth, and they're trampling over cities and over people and, uh, and over each other. And at the end of the dream, 
Daniel says, verse 15, we get, to see, we get to see how he's feeling after this. Verse 15, he says, I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen. I was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions terrified me. Verse 28, I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts, and my face was pale with fear. You know, this is essentially the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 in lots of ways. It's essentially the same dream. Like in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's these four parts of a statue, four parts of an idol, and we're told that these four parts each represent a different kingdom. In Daniel's dream, each of the four monsters represents a different kingdom as well. Okay? In Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, it was the fourth part of the statue that was the strongest. In Daniel's dream here, 50 years later, it's the fourth monster, the fourth fourth beast that rose out of the sea. That's the one that's the worst, the most dangerous, the most powerful. In chapter 2, what happens to the statue is that it's smashed by a great rock that came and, and, uh, and as it lands, after smashing the statue, it becomes a great mountain. That's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In Daniel's dream, he sees the ancient one who is seated on the throne, and he's looking around, and he's ready to judge. And what happens in verse 13, Daniel says, someone like a son of man, he saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It'll never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And that's what happens. So what happens is the Son of Man comes to this decision that it's time for the, it's time, time is up for these monsters. Okay? The time for their rule is up. It's time for him to deal with them. And so in the end, verse 27, chapter 7, verse 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever and all rulers will serve and obey him. Now, what's happened here? What's happened here is Daniel is haunted by something that he saw 50 years earlier. You with me on that? He's haunted by something he saw 50 years earlier when God revealed it first to Nebuchadnezzar. And now it's a recurring dream for Daniel. Even though it's like, it's good news, ultimately it's good news for the, for the world— It's troubling and it's terrifying for Daniel, and he still carries it with him even 50 years later. And it seems to me that's a really important part of what it means to be a truth teller, okay? Because I need to be honest with you. Truth telling isn't a choice between telling the truth and feeling some fear on the one hand, or keeping silent, keeping quiet, and having no fear on the other hand. That's not how it works. Either way, there's fear, okay? Either way, there is fear. The question is, what do we fear more? What are we most, more afraid of? Now, Daniel's choice that he faced in the story, Daniel's choice is this. If I tell the king the truth, there will be, probably will be consequences for me. Maybe I am punished. Maybe I am thrown in prison. Maybe I carry the vision personally, and it becomes like this psychological, emotional burden for me that I carry around for the next 50 years. And that is something to be afraid of. Okay? On the other hand, Daniel also knows if I don't tell the king the truth, other people will suffer. Nebuchadnezzar will keep on thinking that he's a god. I will have been selfish. I will have been unfaithful. 
and I fear that more. Now listen, everybody feels fear. If you're a kid in this room and if you can hear my voice, listen, being a grown-up doesn't mean you don't feel fear, okay? Are you with me on that, kids? Grown-ups feel fear because fear is not a bad thing. Fear is natural. It's a, it's a helpful emotion. Fear protects us from bad situations. And he, we, for, for those of us who, are, who live here in Babylon, uh, life in Babylon doesn't mean that we don't have fear. But if we're going to thrive in Babylon, we need to figure out how to fear the right things. We need to figure out how to fear the right things. Now, it can be scary to tell the truth, right? Because if you tell the truth, the king might get offended. You might lose your job. You might lose friends at school. You might end a relationship. You might get people saying nasty things about you online. There are some places in the world today where if you tell the truth in the same way that Daniel did, it can cost you your life. And so, of course, that's scary. Of course, you're not crazy to be afraid of that. You might be crazy not to be afraid of that. But I can also imagine what happens in my life if I don't tell the truth. Because that can be scary too. I, like, I, I fear, if I don't tell the truth, I fear what could happen to my family, what can happen to my kids, what can happen to my wife. I fear if I don't tell the truth, what could happen to my community or to my church. If I don't tell the truth, I fear what could happen to the city. And I'm more afraid of that. I'm more afraid of that. I'm more afraid that someday Nebuchadnezzar might stand before God, okay, or the Nebuchadnezzars in my life might stand before God, and as they're being judged, they might turn and they might look at me and say, Mike, you knew. Like, you knew that, you, you, you knew that I was wrong and you didn't tell me. You knew that this was coming for me and you didn't warn me. You knew that he's better and you didn't warn me. I got to be honest with you. I'm more afraid of that. I'm more afraid of that. So you know what a truth teller is? A truth teller is not someone who never feels fear. A truth teller is someone who fears the right thing. Okay? A truth teller is someone who fears the right thing. How many of us, uh, how many of us have a recurring dream? Anybody here have a recurring dream? Yeah, a bunch of us. I have a recurring, I have a number of recurring dreams, but I'll tell you about one of them. In one of my recurring dreams, I'm traveling in China, okay? I've been to China, and I'm in my recurring dream. I'm back there, and it, I'm kind of, it's just me and my tour guide, and it's the end of the trip, and it's time for me to leave, get to the airport so that I can catch my flight home, be with my family. But I say to my tour guide, you know, there's just one more historic site that I want to check out. So if you can just, just give me a little bit more time, it'll be no problem. I'll go check out this historic site, and I'll be back, and I'll catch my flight. No problem. And the tour guide lets me go because he, he assumes I'm going to a museum or something like that. The truth is, what I really wanted to do was go to a comic shop or a toy shop, like a collectible store, and, uh, and I didn't tell him because I didn't want him to know that I'm actually a nerd and I didn't want, I just, I was embarrassed about that, and I didn't tell him the truth, because it was embarrassing. The truth was embarrassing. And so what happens in my dream is there's all this traffic. My taxi gets stuck in traffic, and I miss my plane, and I never see my family again. Okay? Never see my family again, and the dream ends with me being angry and depressed 
and guilty because I lost my family, and it's my own stinking fault because I didn't have the courage to tell the truth. I was too scared to tell the truth, and I have other dreams that are other recurring dreams, but they're all basically along those lines. And I want you to know, God has a recurring dream too, okay? God has a recurring dream as well. In God's dream, there's all these powers that kind of rise up for a season, and they, they do some bad stuff. And maybe it's Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then the Roman Empire. Maybe it's that. But maybe it's the kingdoms of like, of, maybe it's other kinds of kingdoms. Maybe it's like greed, or poverty, or violence, or consumerism, kingdoms like that. Now, in one version of God's dream, there's this great rock that comes down from the heavens, and it crushes those kingdoms, and it becomes a a, a God's kingdom. It, It becomes this great mountain, and it's God's kingdom. In another version of the dream, monsters attack. Monsters rise up out of the sea, and they attack the earth, but someone like a son of man strips them of their power, and he gives their power to the people. See, in, in, in my recurring dream, I'm stuck in Babylon and life is, is passing me by because I'm too scared, too embarrassed to tell the truth. In God's dream, God gets the victory even when I don't. Even when I don't. He, he is the one who scatters the kingdoms to the wind. He crushes the monsters and he gives their power away. And, and, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Because centuries later, we know about a rock that wasn't made by human hands, that came and crushed uh, idols. We've heard Jesus say, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates and the powers of hell will not conquer it. We know about that. We know about a son of man, because that's how Jesus referred to himself most often. We know that the cross is where Jesus defeated the monsters of, like, Satan and sin and death. And we know that today, Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is on his throne. And that's true. And that's a fact. And his kingdom will never end. And if it is true, if that's true, what can Nebuchadnezzar really do in your life? What can he really do? If this is true, that Jesus, is Christ, Jesus Christ is on the throne, what can the monsters really do? What can they really do? And I hope we'll remember that when we're in situations where we're tempted to lie or to, to soften the truth instead of being truth-tellers. I hope that we will uh, be people of prayer. I hope that we'll be people of compassion. I hope that we'll be people who are grounded by sound doctrine. And, and I hope that we'll, we will fear the right things. We'll decide to fear the right things and tell the truth. Listen to what Jesus said years later. With this, I'll close. He said, Do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You, benediction, are worth more than many sparrows. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.